I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey everybody, welcome to Serial Streamers, episode four. I've got a doozy of a docuseries for you today. I think I say that every time, but this time I mean it. If you're watching this on YouTube right now, don't forget to hit the follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss any new videos that come out. And if you're listening on a podcast app, make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button so that you also don't miss any new episodes on the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube right now and wondering what I'm talking about, I also record this for a podcast, specifically uh, the Serial Streamers episodes are on the Murderish podcast feed. So you can listen to this in the podcast version and vice versa. If you're listening to this on a podcast right now, you can go to YouTube and search Jamie on air and you can find me on YouTube. And if you're not quite sure what Serial Streamers is, Serial Streamers is a true crime TV club that I started a little while ago. Um, and it's kind of like a book club, but it's for people who binge all the true crime docuseries like me. And I know there are a, are a lot of you out there. So I decided to start Serial Streamers, a true crime TV club. And what we do is every couple of weeks, I will go on Instagram at Jamie on air and I'll announce the watch assignment and we will go and watch a true crime docuseries. So far, we've watched something on the Mary Kay Letourneau case. We did the Nixium cult. We're doing another case right now, which I'm going to get into. But if you want to join the club, just follow me on Instagram at Jamie on air. Every couple of weeks I go on Instagram, I announce the watch assignment. We go and watch the docuseries. Then we come back to Instagram about a week later and we just, we talk about it just like a book club, but it's virtual. It's on Instagram. So follow me, Jamie on air. 
Hey, it's Jamie. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to let everybody know that when I listen back to the audio, I have no idea why, but I made up a brand new word that isn't even a word. And that term is revolutionalize. I don't know why I said it. The correct way to say it is revolutionize. And what's funny is I say it the correct way several times in the episode, but then I go back and forth between revolutionalize and revolutionize. So I don't know why I said it, but it was driving me nuts. So Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy this episode and the new word that I made up. All right, you guys, we are going to be covering the docuseries called The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Now, this is, of course, on the case of Elizabeth Holmes, one tiny drop of blood. I'm trying to try my best. That's my impersonation of Elizabeth Holmes. For those of you who don't know, you can pause this and Google it. She's got the deepest, she's got a very noticeable deep voice. So that is my impression. We've reinvented the traditional laboratory infrastructure with a mission to make early diagnosis and early detection a reality. But The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, it's an HBO original. I found it on Max, which is formerly HBO Max, and it came out in 2019. And let's go ahead and dive in. So Elizabeth Holmes is the founder of a company called Theranos. Theranos stands for therapy and diagnosis. You kind of merge the two words together and you get Theranos. And essentially Theranos is the laboratory reinvented, specifically like blood tests that you get in a traditional lab. Theranos sought to revolutionize blood tests and how they were done, the cost at which they were done, the speed at which you would get the result of this test. Uh, that was the company's mission, was to sort of revolutionize the blood test. But you're going to find out they weren't very revolutionary. Spoiler alert. Elizabeth Holmes established Theranos in 2003 at the age of 19. She says that it came out of her own fear of needles because the whole thing with Theranos was that they had this technology or said they had this technology where they could, instead of like traditionally going in with this big needle, sticking it in your vein and sucking out all this blood from your body to test for all kinds of things, all kinds of diagnostic tests, they would just take a simple finger prick right from your finger, no long needle, just a finger prick, and it would just be a drop of blood and they could run the same tests that a traditional lab could run when they stick this big needle in your vein. At least that's what they said that they could do, but we're gonna find out they weren't really doing that. And like I said, Theranos sought to revolutionize blood testing by offering diagnostics tests, like uh, testing for things like diabetes, cancer, cholesterol, and so many more with only one tiny drop of blood. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't guarantee how many times I'm going to do that impression in this video. Okay, here we go. So Theranos said that they could just get one tiny drop of blood with a finger prick versus the traditional method, which is called venipuncture, um, which is essentially just drawing blood from a vein using a needle. And, you know, a lot of people have fear of needles. It is a very real thing. I go in and I just, it's like nothing to me. And maybe that's because I've had a lot of needles in my arm. Now that sounded bad. That's not because I was doing illegal or illicit drugs, which 
no judgment if you are, but you know, I've had babies and procedures and stuff like that. And I don't know, I've just gotten very used to getting a needle in my arm and seeing the blood come out and it's not a big deal. But I know that this is a very real debilitating fear for a lot of people. So Theranos marketed their service, their product as being for those people who were debilitated by their fear of traditional needles. So Theranos, really the way that their process worked was they would get one tiny drop of blood from a finger prick and that sample would be placed inside of their Edison machine. Now an Edison machine, to me, it kind of looks like one of those small $80 like countertop ice makers. I have one, we put it in our travel trailer when we go camping or glamping so that we never run out of ice. It kind of was the size of one. It kind of looks like one of those things. And this Theranos machine, you would put the tiny blood sample in the Theranos Edison machine and it was supposed to be processed at a much lower cost and you would get your results from that diagnostic test much, much faster. In fact, you would get it like on the spot, or at least that's what Theranos said they could do. And Theranos said, and, and if in reality, if this process actually worked, it could save lives, right? Because people are getting answers sooner. So it's like early prevention of serious diseases, things like that. So this could have saved lives and really revolutionized the blood testing industry. But um, they fell short of that just a little bit. In 2004, Elizabeth Holmes is attending Stanford University. So she was a very impressive person from an education standpoint, but she does drop out in 2004 to focus solely on Theranos. She's one of those young, um, you know, tech company founders that you always hear about in Silicon Valley. And in fact, she would move her company to Silicon Valley eventually. And we'll get into that. And once she got going with Theranos and really focused all of her attention on this company, she would say things like, you know, we are striving, and these are not, this is, I'm paraphrasing. We're striving for a world in which people have access to diagnosis when it matters. A world in which no one has to say goodbye too soon. And she's tugging on people's heartstrings in her marketing materials. And I understand that it's a marketing strategy, but when you come to find out that the whole company was like bullshit, it kind of pisses you off to say things like this where she's tugging at people's heartstrings and in reality she's just freaking defrauding the shit out of everybody. In 2009, a man named Sonny Balwani, who was a successful software entrepreneur, he becomes Theranos' president and chief operating officer and he gets heavily involved in the company. And that was because he had, at the time he entered the company, he had guaranteed a $10 million loan to Theranos. So he was, you know, sort of a, an investor in the company and he really believed in the company. He believed in Elizabeth Holmes. He's, he seemed very smitten by her. I think that he thought she was like the next Steve Jobs. And so he sort of wanted to ride that wave of success to propel himself, you know, professionally and financially. In 2014, uh, Elizabeth Holmes moves Theranos to Silicon Valley. Um, and at that time, the company was employing 800 people, give or take, and it was valued at about $10 billion, billion with a B. And four years later, shockingly, that same company would be worth less than zero. Also in 2014, Forbes magazine names Holmes one of the richest women in America. And at that time, they valued her net worth to be about 4.5 billion dollars. Now, you know, a lot of us have heard about Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is in the southern region of the San Francisco area in here in California. And it's a very well-known technology hub. And companies like Apple, Meta, formerly Facebook, 
eBay, PayPal, and Uber were all established in Silicon Valley. In the docu-series, there's a man that comes on and he's talking about Thomas Edison, you know, the world famous inventor. And he says that, you know, Thomas Edison could tell a great story, but often he would promise far more than what he could follow through with. And so he was sort of like a fake it to make it guy. He would fake it for reporters and um, he employed stall tactics to buy time until he could make his inventions work and fulfill all the promises that he'd made about these new innovative inventions. But in reality, Thomas Edison was sort of a fake it till you make it guy. And the reason why this gentleman in the docuseries brings this up is because Elizabeth Holmes seems to have done the same thing. She was a very good storyteller, a very convincing storyteller, and she may or may not have believed her own bullshit. She may have believed early on and midway through in her company and in her technology. But at a certain point, you got to believe that she was well aware that this shit wasn't going anywhere. And it was just one big lie. And it wasn't going to work out the way that she, you know, had planned it to. But I think she'd gotten in too deep. But we'll get into that. During speaking engagements, Elizabeth Holmes was sure to set herself apart from other CEOs, other high profile CEOs, because people were always comparing her to other big, you know, CEOs of these major companies. She was a woman who was dominating in a man's world, a technology world in Silicon Valley. And she would say, in these speaking engagements, you know, she would say things like, you know, well, I invented a product and I launched a company. They're just CEOs. In other words, I mean, there are many multimillionaires who are just CEOs of somebody else's company, but they didn't invent a revolutionary product. They did not launch their own company. They work at somebody else's company. And so she's sort of like saying like, hey, like I'm up here and those dudes are like way down here. And during this time that Theranos was coming up and, you know, becoming like a rising star in the tech world, the laboratory industry did need disrupting, right? Because the prices, the prices of traditional lab tests are sky high. I know this personally. I just recently paid out of pocket for some lab tests and it was a few hundred dollars for nothing really all that serious or big, you know, it was just, and I was there for all of like five minutes. So I know that, you know, the lab industry really has a history of overcharging. Their prices are always sky high and they're, you know, reportedly overcharging Medicare and Medicaid all the time, which really just tumbles down to all of us, regular folks like you and me, having to pay more for every Everything else because this these laboratory giants are overcharging Medicaid and Medicare, which then drives up our healthcare costs. So Elizabeth Holmes, she just, you know, kind of describing who she was and, and her appearance. Um, she was a very striking woman, in my opinion. She was very tall. She was a Caucasian woman with blonde hair, although I think her natural color is kind of like mine, which is like a dirty blonde. I don't know if you can see underneath. Here we go. Here we go. Her natural color is like a dirty blonde, and she would... I think that she would color it, you know, more um, blonde like my hair, I guess you would say. She always wore it in this like messy bun and she had all these like flyaways, so many flyaways. I know. Okay, hold on. As a woman, I mean, you if you know, you know. And listen, we are, we all have been subject to crazy flyaways. And then if you get into a certain light, it's like, holy shit, you look like you have like these little 
worms crawling out of your head. I just really wanted to get some like really good hair paste and like slick her hair back so badly watching this docuseries, but she kind of had like, it looked like it was over-processed hair. Maybe it was, was from all the bleach, but her hair looked, God, I'm going down a rabbit hole. I'm taking a real hard left turn on Elizabeth Holmes' hair. But it just looked like processed from all the bleach and it was kind of like damaged and there was all these flyaways and it looks like she just kind of like hashtag woke up like this. And she always wore it in kind of like a messy bun with hair kind of in her face. She always wore all black, mostly turtlenecks. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Steve Jobs. And she wore this bright red lipstick. Now, I'm not one to tear another woman down because I certainly could use some help in so many areas. I just really wanted to redo her eyeliner. I just really, and I'm not even good at eyeliner. I, I, I suck the most. If any makeup application, I suck the most at eyeliner. But even I know that she, she could have enhanced her beautiful eyes uh, a lot better than she did. Anyway, all right, let's get back to like what really matters. But like, I don't know, that shit mattered to me. She would. She had this very deep, deep voice. Like I'm talking like, let me see if I can do it. I'm Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> like it was this deep voice and almost sounded like it wasn't authentic. Like it was forced, but, and there's all these debates as to whether her, you know, Elizabeth Holmes kind of faked her deep voice and maybe she did. Listen, she's a woman working in a largely male dominated world and I'm no stranger to that, right? I worked in corporate specifically. I did commercial financing for like 18 years before I started doing podcasting and content creating full time. And my bosses were men. My colleagues were men, my clients, business owners were men. So I was surrounded by men. And I know that there were things that I did, whether consciously or subconsciously, to sort of give out a little more male energy, if you will, because I did not want to get certain attention from men, unprof unprofessional attention, if you catch my drift. I didn't want any of that bullshit. I always made sure to dress professionally. I didn't wear short skirts. I didn't, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to do that. You, women should be able to wear whatever the fuck they want. And a man just like keeps his eyes and his hands and his words to himself. But I guess I'm just saying subconsciously or consciously, there were certain things that I would do to give off a little more male energy mostly so I would be taken seriously at my job by my bosses, my colleagues, and my clients. So maybe, you know, one theory would be that Elizabeth Holmes made her voice deeper to give off a little more like male energy. And if you notice at some of her speaking engagements and her interviews, she kind of sat in a more masculine way. Like she would have her legs spread apart and she would be wearing these sort of like masculine clothes and she would be like elbows on her knees and just kind of like a man would lean in during an interview. I don't know I, if this is making any sense. And, and maybe it was authentic, maybe it wasn't. I really don't know one way or the other, but she did have a very polarizing look and voice about her. Although she would point out regarding the all black clothing and the black turtlenecks that yes, she was a deep admirer of Steve Jobs. She said, I've been wearing turtlenecks since I was seven. All right. Elizabeth Holmes was born on February 3rd of 1984 in Washington, DC. Her father was a vice president among other high profile, higher up positions. He was a VP at Enron, the huge giant of a company that would eventually file bankruptcy and all, had all these charges leveled against them for fraud and 
you know, white collar crimes and all these things. He was the VP at Enron, so I thought that was interesting. And Elizabeth Holmes' mother was a professional committee staffer. She also had a younger brother named Christian, or she has a younger brother named Christian Holmes. And Elizabeth Holmes came from money. She came from, you know, her great, great, great grandfather was a Hungarian uh, immigrant who founded Fleischmann's Yeast Company, which made them very wealthy. So there was money in the Holmes lineage. Whether she and her family, direct, you know, her direct family were like uber wealthy, maybe, maybe not. But if he was a VP at Enron, something tells me they did have some money. Elizabeth Holmes would describe herself in interviews as being very studious, uh, never watched TV much as a child. She said her best friends were books as a child. Specifically, Moby Dick was one of her favorite books. In 2002, Elizabeth Holmes attends Stanford and she's studying chemical engineering, although that wouldn't last long. Two years later, she would drop out in 2004 just to put her sole focus on Theranos, her company. And Theranos was operated under a lot of secrecy. They kept all their processes and their, am I supposed to say processes? Whatever. They kept everything a secret, everything from their financial status to their processes. They just were very, very secretive and vague in interviews. They did not want to give up how their process worked for the blood samples and their Edison machine. And Theranos as a company, they sought to stick the traditional lab inside the box and the box being their Edison machines. That's what Theranos called their blood sampling machines. They're kind of like these countertop sized machines and they would call them Edison machines. But a lot of people in the docuseries called it the box. And how they would stick the traditional laboratory inside the box was that they would just use that finger prick blood sample. They would stick it in what was called a nanotainer, which is basically this teeny, teeny, tiny container for that drop of blood and they would stick that little nanotainer inside the Edison box and it's supposed to like do its thing and run the diagnostics of that little finger prick of blood and give you all these fabulous results that you would get at like a Quest Diagnostics lab. While Elizabeth Holmes was at Stanford, she ends up filing her first medical patent and essentially what that patent uh, was regarding, it was regarding use of a patch to deliver antibiotics. She ran this idea by a Stanford professor. And this professor told her flat out, like, this is not going to work. That's just scientifically, it's just, the, it's not going to work. Elizabeth Holmes didn't care. She just pressed on, she filed a patent and she just kind of did what she wanted. And it's that sort of like overconfidence and overzealousness we see in a lot of these high powered inventors and tech company founders that she was just like, look, you're not going to stop me. You're not the first person to tell me something's not going to work. I'm going to press on. Even though this professor had a lot of expertise in what Elizabeth Holmes was trying to accomplish with this patch that she put a patent on uh, to deliver antibiotics, but she didn't listen to the advice. She just pressed on. Now, another Stanford professor thought differently of Elizabeth Holmes. He thought she was extremely special so special, in fact, that he ended up quitting his job at the university to work for Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Uh, he really thought she was the next Steve Jobs, and he was like putting all his eggs in that basket. As Theranos is really ramping up, Elizabeth Holmes is able to convince private investors to put up hundreds of millions of dollars without ever looking at audited financial statements. They just went on a gut feeling. Now, I think a lot of investors will tell you that 
they a lot of investors their strategy is to get into an investment early on and if it doesn't pay off it doesn't pay off but if they're an early investor they stand to gain the most out of all the other investors who get in later in the game once this product or, or service is like actually verified to work. Um, and, you know, they just went on a gut feeling. They never looked at audited financial statements. They were just like, yes, we are so impressed with you, Elizabeth Holmes, and your invention. We are just going to invest based on our emotions and not anything to do with data. Some, you know, executives from the huge company Oracle, Apple, some of these uh, executives were early investors in Theranos. And this was happening when Elizabeth Holmes was about 21 years old with absolutely no experience in business or launching a successful business. You know, aside from the fact that her great, 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 great you know, grandfather was a yeast guru. She really had nothing. She had no leg to stand on as far as like, hey, I come from this long lineage of successful entrepreneurs or I, I, I graduated with a business degree. She had none of that. But people still invested millions and millions and millions of dollars. And Holmes ends up assembling an extremely impressive uh, board of directors which included the likes of Dick Kovacevic. He was the former Wells Fargo CEO, as well as high-ranking military officials like James Mattis. He was the former U.S. Secretary of Defense and Henry Kissinger, who is a former U.S. Secretary of State, among other really high-profile names. These were the people who were on the board of directors for Theranos. But none of these impressive men had any kind of scientific or medical background. And I think that was by design. These are instead just very powerful older men who might succumb to a certain charm, you know, Elizabeth Holmes charm. And in fact, they did. And they didn't have any kind of medical or scientific background. And how that would help Elizabeth was that they wouldn't, they'd be none the wiser to the misgivings of her, you know, revolutionary invention that actually wasn't really working. Um, they wouldn't know, uh, they wouldn't have a lot of basis to question the technology because that was not their expertise. And that's probably what Elizabeth Holmes wanted. And it seemed by, you know, by her forming this specific board of directors, seemed like she was really aiming to get military contracts for Theranos. And she chose her board of directors accordingly. During conversations, she would hint at military contracts, but she wouldn't actually go on record and talk about it. And people wanted access to Theranos' processes, but processes, I don't know. But Holmes wouldn't show anyone anything. She wouldn't show them the machine, the Edison machine. She was very vague about the company's process, their technology, their financials, really everything. She didn't want to divulge too much. And we would find out later why she was, you know, operating under a shroud of secrecy. Now, Sonny Balwani, the president of Theranos, he had previously sold a very successful technology company and he had um, significant expertise in software and IT. And he was 49 years old while Elizabeth Holmes was 30 years old, so he was almost 20 years her senior. And he spoke about Elizabeth as the most important inventor of our time. He thought she was absolutely iconic. At some point, Elizabeth Holmes is living with Sonny Balwani, 
Now, they kept that pretty quiet, although, of course, people at Theranos started, started to speculate that there was something going on romantically between the two of them, although they would never divulge that. They wanted to keep that a secret along with everything else. They were often caught, you know, on airplane flights to business meetings together at odd hours of the evening. And, um, you know, they just didn't disclose, but they were in a full-blown, you know, romantic relationship. Now, Walgreens had seen the early vision of Theranos and they really wanted to buy into this company. They really wanted to buy into this technology. Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos essentially sold Walgreens on eliminating the laboratory. They would just instead have these Edison machines sitting in all of their stores all across the United States, and people would just come in, do the finger prick, put their blood in the nanotainer, stick it inside the little machine, and poof, you have your results at a much cheaper and quicker rate. So Walgreens ends up signing a huge contract with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes must have been doing cartwheels at this time. And, um, but right after they signed the contract, of course, Theranos struggles to create the box and actually make it work as promised. And shockingly, Walgreens had never looked inside of the box. They had never asked to see the technology and they never hired any kind of outside um, experts to look at this box and go, oh yeah, that box looks like it is capable it, or it is capable of doing these diagnostics tests that they claim that it can. They just signed the contract without looking inside the box. This reminds me of that movie, that Brad Pitt movie, what the hell is it called? Shit. Is it called seven where he's like, what's in the box? <laughs> like, I don't know why that's popping in my brain right now. Okay. Squirrel. Who's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Here we go. But the Edison machines are just a hot mess, right? The nanotainers are so small. They keep falling off, you know, before or falling from people's fingertips before they can even put them inside the box. And then the little nanotainers are being compromised because they're falling on a hard floor. There was blood spilling everywhere inside of the box and there were pieces breaking. Essentially, this this shit didn't work. This These boxes were not at all ready or validated to work in the way that Theranos said that they would. Now, the Theranos website claimed that they could run over 200 diagnostics tests, but most of these tests were never validated. They claim this on their website, but that claim was absolutely never validated. And in fact, Theranos, Theranos could not run over 200 tests accurately, as you would find out, as we would all find out toward the middle end of the docu-series. And a lot of people within Theranos start to question experts, you know, who know this, the what type of technology and hardware it would take to be able to do what Theranos is claiming to do inside this box. And they're saying, no way, it's not practical to run all those tests accurately in that small of a box. They're saying much more hardware is needed and there's no way you can fit all the necessary hardware inside that freaking box. And Theranos employees are pushing back. They're saying the box is too small. And so what would happen was those employees, they would just get rid of them and they would filter in new yes employees who would just keep their head down, keep quiet, and just keep pushing the narrative that this shit works. Ian Gibbons, he was a Cambridge PhD. He starts working at Theranos at some point and he's actually the first real expert to work at the company. And 
he actually did want to do things the right way. He was very highly regarded. He knew what he was doing. He had the expertise that it would take to do the things that Theranos wanted to do. But he pretty quickly realizes that there, you know, he starts pushing back on Theranos's processes and questioning their technology. And Theranos is like, uh, yeah, no, dude, we're used to like, yes, people. And now he's become a problem, this expert, Ian Gibbons. He's a problem because he's looking at their processes and their technology and he's going, this, this doesn't make sense. This is not going to work. It doesn't work. And he starts pushing back. So what does Theranos do? They start sliding him. They take away his office. They start telling him to work from home. Don't come into the office. They wanted to get rid of him as quickly as possible. And this was in 2013 when this was all going down with Ian Gibbons. And Ian Gibbons is absolutely distraught over this and he starts drinking heavily. He becomes very depressed. It's really weighing heavy on his mind that he is going to have to testify at an upcoming misappropriation case that was looming against Theranos and that he was going to have to testify and it wasn't going to be good you know, for Theranos, he would, he was going to have to tell the truth. And this was all weighing heavy on him. And at the same time, you know, Theranos is sliding him and he's just in this mix of like, oh my God, I want to do the right thing. I'm trying to do the right thing. Theranos is, I'm going to lose my job. And it just, it just was a, a downward spiral for him and pretty quickly. And essentially that misappropriation case would essentially call Theranos patents into question. And sadly, on May 23rd of 2013, Ian Gibbons dies by suicide. He just knew too much and it was a it took a heavy toll on him. Theranos didn't want anybody getting in the way of them pushing forward and that's exactly what they did. They just Ian Gibbons is gone. They're just full speed ahead. And in fact, they were probably happy that he was gone because he knew too much. He was in the way and he wanted to get things done the right way and they were not doing things the right way. Now, Quest Diagnostics, I'm very familiar with them. That's where I go to get my lab tests whenever I need them. They're a giant in the lab you know, industry. Quest Diagnostics was the enemy of Theranos as far as Theranos was concerned. And Sonny Balwani, the president of Theranos, would say in so many words that, you know, Quest Diagnostics' entire product strategy is lies getting people sick and then overcharging them to get better. So he made some bold claims about Quest Diagnostics. At Theranos, there was very, very, very tight security once the company blew up and specifically for Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani. In fact, they were referred to as Eagle One being Elizabeth Holmes and Eagle Two being Sunny. So when they would enter the building, it's like, you know, you know, Eagle One has entered the building, blah, 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 blah. Like, it's almost like the kind of thing where everybody just like keeps their head down. Don't look at them. Um, you know, just keep your head down, do your work. Uh, Eagle One and Eagle Two have landed and they just walk into their offices. And it just was a, it seemed to be a very toxic and dysfunctional and anxious secret work environment where like, you know, you kind of just have to keep your head down and don't say too much. Don't question anything, certainly. And the staff did say that and everybody had to sign NDAs within Theranos and Sonny apparently watched everything on security cameras. He saw everybody's emails. I mean, he was super paranoid, which made all of the employees at Theranos uh, paranoid. 
And essentially it was like, don't speak to your families about the company. And the entire staff were just like not trusting of each other. It was very siloed as they described it in the docu-series. In 2013, Theranos went live with testing patients in Arizona with their, um, with their Edison machines and the finger prick technology. And this was extremely risky at that time because the Edison machines had a lot of problems and they were not approved by regulators for in-store testing. But at the same time, Theranos was desperate to keep the Walgreens contract intact. So they were willing to bend some of the rules in a major way and push forward and put these shitty machines inside all these Walgreens in the state of Arizona and just put them to work because they could not afford to lose this Walgreens contract. They needed Walgreens. They needed the Walgreens deal to attract new investors and get new money into the company. Because at this time, Theranos was running out of money. Meanwhile, while they're putting these shitty machines inside all these Walgreens in Arizona, Theranos raised another $4 million from investors. Investors like the Walton family of Walmart, as well as Robert Kraft, who owns or did own the New England Patriots. I don't know if he's the current owner or not. They, they were getting all this money even while they were already putting shitty machines inside of a, a Walgreens, they were still able to get more money at this time. In 2015, Elizabeth Holmes lobbies to pass a law in Arizona for patients to order their own laboratory tests without a doctor's prescription. And doctors at the same time, they warned patients that Theranos was not providing them with much information about how they were conducting the laboratory tests. Whereas other laboratories, you know, traditional labs that had been around a long time, they were historically very transparent with doctors about their process as well as, you know, uh, information that they needed, that doctors needed in order to treat their patients. Theranos, on the other hand, was really not giving up information. Again, everything was under a shroud of secrecy. And these doctors need this information in order to continue treating their patients properly. So it was just sort of like a clusterfuck. At some at some point, Theranos hires a trainer of somebody who is an expert in phlebotomy, a phlebotomist, and um, they hire this person to train Walgreens staff because if you think about it, like Walgreens staff, they're not trained. They don't draw blood from anybody. You just go in, you buy your stuff, or you go to the pharmacist, you get your drugs, and you, you ask a few questions, but for the most part, you're not like going in there and getting blood drawn. So Theranos had to hire a trainer, a phlebotomist to go to all these Walgreens that had the Edison machine in them and they had to train them on how to deal with kids drawing blood from kids or finger prick from kids drawing blood properly and procedures in case there's an issue or an emergency and also around the same time the Wall Street Journal there's a Wall Street Journal reporter a man by the name of John Carreyrou and a source ends up calling him with a tip about Theranos and essentially this anonymous tipster says that there's a lab director who left Theranos on bad terms. And this l former lab director had a lot of concerns over Theranos practices. 
So, of course, that uh, reporter from the Wall Street Journal, he starts to dig his heels into this story and he's like starts poking around to see if, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire with Theranos. Now, Theranos ended up at some point hiring just like a crack legal team that included a man named David Boyce. Now, David Boyce was known as like a lion in the legal world. He had defended Al Gore previously. He apparently shredded Bill Gates during a previous deposition. It was also reported that he had helped keep Harvey Weinstein accusers quiet uh, during the whole Me Too movement and when all that shit was going down with Harvey Weinstein. So people were terrified of David Boyce and he was just very well known and very well feared within the legal industry. Theranos had hired Boyce and his team and Boyce starts intimidating and hounding ex-Theranos employees to keep them quiet. Essentially, he's threatening them with litigation if they broke the confidentiality agreement, the NDA, that they had signed as part of their work with Theranos. So he's just like doing his job and working to keep these people quiet because they all knew a heck of a lot about this company, this crooked company. Now the ex-lab director who'd apparently left on really bad terms and had issues with them as a company and their processes and, and things like that, this ex-lab director was terrified when John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal reporter, contacts him and, you know, basically the ex-lab director's like, look, I'll talk to you, but I insist on remaining anonymous. He was terrified. So this anonymous tipster tells Carrie Rue that the Edison machine could only do just a few tests, not the 200 plus tests that Theranos said that it could do. And, and this is big, he also said that most of the tests or all of the tests were not being done inside of the Edison machines. They were being done on commercially available lab machines. So basically, he was claiming that Theranos was saying that all these lab tests were being conducted inside their little machine, when in reality, their machines didn't work. So they had to go and just send these tests out like anybody else would, the traditional method of sending these out to a traditional lab. And that's how they were getting the results. But they were lying about the reliability of the Edison machine and the accuracy of its results. So it was just a big shit show. And this tipster really cracked open this case for John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal reporter, to go full force and look into this thing. And Carreyrou, the reporter, actually goes and tests it for himself. He goes and gets his own blood drawn at a Walgreens, supposedly trying to use the Theranos method. However, there was no finger prick. It was a traditional needle. What's it called? The vena vena puncture, the needle just drawing blood from his veins. So it was nothing special like Theranos had claimed. So he saw it for himself that something was amiss inside these Walgreens. And at the same time, Theranos employees start noticing that finger pricks start to dwindle and regular needles start to increase. And there was really no explanation from Theranos as to why this was happening. Although Theranos gave the employees a blanket statement to to regurgitate to, to patients, something like, due to the test your doctor ordered, we have to use venipuncture to collect enough blood sample. Would you like to proceed? And it was just bullshit. They were not supposed to be using venipuncture. That was the whole basis of Theranos, to revolutionize this process and use just a finger prick and just like a small drop of blood. But in reality, that's not at all what they were doing. And, and employees were noticing and starting to push back on Theranos. You know, instead of seizing operations while they wait for the Edison machine to actually work properly, Holmes 
came up with a workaround. Basically what Theranos did, instead of you know ceasing operations and waiting for the machines to work, Theranos modified some of the machines and used them to process some of the blood samples. And what they did was they diluted some of the samples to create the illusion that it was working. So it was just smoke and mirrors. These machines were not working, but Theranos did whatever they could. They lied and cheated to create an illusion that it was working. And it's just bonkers that they did this. And the entire process, although Elizabeth Holmes would always say, you know, this entire process that Theranos uses is automated from start to finish. In reality, it was the exact opposite. It was clunky. It was messy. There were a ton of steps to process and get these samples that were actually just being sent to traditional laboratories and they were not being processed in the Edison machines. And it wasn't, nothing about it was automated. And then at some point, Theranos starts to do more and more serious tests, testing for infectious diseases like syphilis, hepatitis C, prostate cancer, and so much more. And in reality, when they started doing these, you know, these more serious tests, there was so much variability in the tests and the patients were getting the wrong and skewed results. And so many of the lab tests that Theranos was running were way off. They hit the, they just did not hit the mark and they didn't match with what other traditional laboratory tests were coming up with. And it was downright dangerous. I mean, imagine that you may have, you're testing, you might have an infectious disease like hepatitis C or prostate cancer, and you're relying on Theranos to give you the right answer, the right, uh, correct diagnosis. And they're giving you shit back that you can't rely on. And so maybe it's coming back saying that you don't have hepatitis C. So then you go on with your life and you don't treat it. Then what happens? So this was a very slippery and deadly slope that Theranos was operating under. And it's just jaw dropping. It's not really just a white collar crime. You know, people could have died. Well, they did have one, you know, Ian Gibbons who died by suicide and that may or may not be a direct result of the way that he was treated within Theranos. But, you know, besides that, you could have had patients dying because they're getting the wrong result back from their lab test and then they don't go and treat something very serious that needs immediate treatment. So Theranos knows that they're all fucked up right? They know, they know that their shit doesn't work. They know that there is so much variability in the answers that they're giving to patients and stuff's not matching up with what the actual result is in a traditional lab. So what do they do? The Theranos starts sending tests to LabCorp, uh, you know, to test their own results. And basically Theranos found out that the results often didn't match what these other laboratories were coming up with, these accurate laboratories were coming up with. So it was just a huge mess and it could have been a deadly mess. And lab associates within Theranos absolutely didn't feel safe uh, running tests for their own families using Theranos technology because it was just crap. At one point, a Theranos lab worker went into Sonny's office and voiced concern. And what did Sonny do? Of course, he shut them down. As much as... A lot of people are starting, you know, people within Theranos and even outside of Theranos, they're starting to really see things that are wrong with Theranos. 
major, major, major cracks in their processes, their technology, you know, all kinds of things, major issues. As much as they know with their own eyes and ears and their expertise that something is wrong, at the same time, there's all these celebrities, Bill Clinton, among others, and high profile individuals who are supporting Theranos and really lifting up Elizabeth Holmes as a great inventor and a great entrepreneur and a um, tech giant and somebody who can be trusted. So it makes these people who just, they know instinctively that something is very wrong, but yet they're questioning their own instincts because they're seeing other highly validated, high profile people supporting her and Theranos. So it was just kind of like a mind fuck, I can imagine. And Elizabeth Holmes was very good at surrounding herself with very powerful people in order to keep regulators at bay. It was sort of a shield of protection for her lies. If she could just shield herself with enough really, really, really powerful and high profile people, it might be enough for regulators not to be able to penetrate that circle, that shield of safety. Elizabeth Holmes wanted an Edison machine in every home in America, but the problem was they would need FDA approval in order to do that. And the other problem was that the FDA reported that Theranos would never provide sufficient information for them to be able to clear the devices for FDA approval. For example, you know, Theranos would never submit a full application to the FDA. Instead, they would sort of like dance around it and they would submit these vague letters as they bought time until they could provide confirmation that the machines could actually process all the tests that they advertised they could do. Meanwhile, John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal, he continues poking around and he's now contacting Theranos employees. Tyler Schultz was one of those employees. And Tyler ends up buying a burner phone with cash because he just wanted to remain anonymous. He was scared to death of Theranos and their crack legal team. He ends up buying a burner phone, you know, because he signed this confidentiality agreement with Theranos when he previously worked there. He buys this burner phone in order to return John Kerry Rue's phone call. And he ends up providing Kerry Rue with information and data to back up all of his claims that shit was wrong with Theranos. But of course, Theranos is always watching. Sonny Balwani is always watching. Elizabeth Holmes is always watching. And they quickly found out that Tyler Schultz was talking to a Wall Street Journal reporter for his investigative report. So now, you know, his spot is blown. And now it's very well known that Tyler Schultz is speaking to an investigative reporter about Theranos and probably has nothing good to say. And around this time, Boyce, the hotshot attorney for Theranos, he ends up giving another threatening letter to another Theranos employee, and that would be Erica Chung. And also around that time, Boyce and his hotshot legal team for Theranos, they end up meeting with John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal reporter, because he's giving them enough heat. He's creating enough smoke about this company that they're like, oh shit, we got to meet with this guy and shut him down. So they meet with him and they're very, uh, they don't, you know, show their hand, so to speak, but they're very worried about the prodding questions that Carreyrou is asking people who were 
formerly inside Theranos and currently inside Theranos. But what ends up happening is the legal team and Carrie Rue just end up going in circles, right? The legal team's trying to do their job to defend Theranos. Carrie Rue's like, look, I'm entering into this meeting knowing that Theranos is lying about their process and their technology and their machines. And essentially, Carrie Rue says in the docuseries that the way that they, the legal team, were stonewalling basically told me I'm on the right track. I'm onto something. Something is up with this company. Now, Erica Chang ends up writing an email to the FDA and she becomes a whistleblower, which apparently doesn't violate the confidentiality agreement. I guess she spoke to a lawyer and was like, hey, what do I do? I'm between a rock and a hard place. I have this information, but I don't want to get sued by Theranos for breaking my NDA agreement. And so the lawyer's like, well, you could send an email, uh, you know, to the FDA and become a whistleblower. And that's exactly what she does. Meanwhile, Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, they end up celebrating a very small victory, but a victory at, you know, over at the Theranos headquarters in Silicon Valley. And essentially that victory was that the FDA had in fact approved one of their tests and it was the herpes test, which... They say in the docu-series that this herpes test was rarely used, but listen, a win is a win and they're going to take it and they're going to celebrate it and sort of blow it up into something bigger uh, because Theranos just needs all the positivity. Theranos needs all the positivity that they can get because they are under fire with this reporter and you know this information that's kind of leaking out about the problems within the company. It also comes out in the docu-series that while Theranos at one point reported $1 billion, $1 billion with a B, $1 billion in revenue in 2015, at that same time, they only had a few hundred thousand in the bank. And that is a huge disconnect. And it's not that I ever banked in my former life when I was doing commercial financing. My clients were business owners, so I saw their bank balances, I saw their annual revenue, I saw their net profit, I saw all the numbers. That is a huge disconnect. If you are reporting $1 billion in revenue, you should have a hell of a lot more than a few hundred thousand in your bank account. So that is a huge red flag to anybody who knows, you know, they know. Still, Holmes and Sonny, they press on. In 2015, a bombshell is dropped, and that is when the Wall Street Journal article comes out. It's published, and it is not good news for Theranos. The Wall Street Journal article reports all the issues that Theranos had with running blood tests and that a high number of them, over 90% of these tests that were run on the Edison machines were not reliable. And this is just huge news because, you know, before this, everybody was sort of lifting Theranos up as this like, you know, breakthrough company and Holmes is this amazing, iconic, you know, inventor. But here's a Wall Street Journal article published and it's just, it ain't good for Theranos. And all along, all of the secrecy that Theranos operated under, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and other executives within the company, they would always claim, you know, when somebody would ask a question, well, walk me through your process. What's your technology? You know, things like that. They would claim, well, these are trade secrets, so we can't divulge too much. But in reality, it, these are not trade secrets. It's just them trying to not divulge their process, which they should be proud of, by the way. But instead, they're keeping it secret because it sucks. It doesn't work. It's not real. It's not accurate. It's 
not doing anything to revolutionize the blood, you know, testing industry. The Wall Street Journal piece was a huge wake-up call for Silicon Valley and just the shit, the fraud that can happen there. Because up until then, it's like, gosh, you'd all we hear about is the good that comes out of Silicon Valley. Oh my God, this company and this company, and now it's worth multi-billions of dollars and changing, you know, the way we do things in the world. And then here's Theranos coming under fire going, oh my God, we may have all been duped. Uh, to the tune of billions of dollars. And Elizabeth Holmes says uh, publicly that she was shocked by the Wall Street Journal article. She says, you know, this is what happens when you try to change things. And again, she's playing the victim like, oh, I'm a hero. These are my words, not hers. But it's like, to me, it's, you know, she's like, oh my God, this is what happens when you try to make change in the world and try to make things better. It's almost like her saying like, look at these haters just trying to take me down. And that's such an easy go-to when you come under fire and you're being questioned for claims that you've made that seem to be false. And um, I don't know, I was embarrassed for her during this whole docu-series because she's trying to act all Oh, I'm so humble. Oh, people are just, you know, they compliment her left and right. And, oh, you went to Stanford. And, oh, at 19, you started this company. It's worth multi-billions and all this stuff. And I just felt so freaking embarrassed for Elizabeth Holmes because she's like, "Mm -hmm, yes. uh But, of course, her voice is deep. She's like, "Mm -hmm, yes, yes, I did that. Uh Uh-huh, yes. And it's like, bitch, you are just lies. Like your whole shit is a lie. You didn't do anything special. Your ass was saying that your little box that you made is running all these tests when in reality you were just literally running tests like anybody else would and lying and saying that your little box did it. And it just is, it's just, it never ceases to amaze me, these swindlers. And Elizabeth Holmes ends up calling the Wall Street Journal uh, claims false and she kind of, she threatens to sue over false claims, which I think a lot of shysters do that, you know, like, oh, I'm going to sue you. You know, they kind of, they hide behind their legal team and they think that that's going to be enough to shut somebody up, but they were wrong. And now around this time, the FDA becomes very worried about patient safety and they ended up putting a ban on the nanotainers from Theranos and the walls really start to close in on Theranos during this time. In October of 2015, there's a tech conference in Laguna Beach and Elizabeth Holmes shows up. And this is at the time when, you know, all these people in the audience are, a lot of them are critics of hers because this is after the Wall Street Journal article was published. She shows up at this conference and, and she sits on the stage and she just bald faced lies. She says that, you know, no, we've never used commercially available machines for finger prick tests. She lied. And the Wall Street Journal... Uh, investigative reporter, he knows this. He's got evidence that she did lie. But here she is on stage just sort of doubling down on this huge lie. In December of 2015, more bad press comes from a Fortune reporter. He says in his piece that Elizabeth Holmes intentionally misled me in previous interviews. And he'd interviewed her numerous times and he'd become very fond of her. But after reading the Wall Street Journal article and, you know, gaining more information himself, he's like, shit, she like intentionally misled me in these previous interviews. I mean, he was duped by her. And um, Theranos around this time, they're barred from running 
any tests, all right? So now they're starting to get shut down, right? Their whole spot is being blown up. Theranos, they're barred from running any tests. Regulators are seeking to shut the whole company down. In 2016, federal regulators are breathing down Theranos' neck and Walgreens, it's at this time that they start to retreat. They start to pull back uh, from Theranos. Also in 2016, that's when one of the Theranos investors, an investor by the name of Partner Fund Management, they sue Theranos for $96.1 million, which is the amount they invested in the, in the crooked company. And they're alleging securities fraud against Theranos. Also in 2016, Walgreens ends up suing for breach of contract to the tune of $140 million. So this is really gonna be it for Theranos. Theranos is gonna be toast. And Elizabeth Holmes lies again. And she says publicly, please excuse my dogs. They are barking right now because my husband's at the door. They can hear the ring doorbell. But I'm like right at the end of this recording and I really don't wanna stop. Literally like exactly. My husband is like, bro, either shit or get off the pot. He's out in the front on the front porch watering the garden, like doing all kinds of shit he doesn't even ever normally do. But on this particular day, he's doing it and it's making my dogs bark. So we'll blame him if this, you know, episode sounds like shit. Sorry, guys. His name's Steve Rice and you can find him at. <laughs> okay. All right. So Holmes says publicly that she was not aware that there were issues within the company or the labs or their machines. She says she only became aware of all these issues after the government, the regulators stepped in and made her aware. I mean, bullshit, bullshit. But you know, she's just a trip, doubling, tripling down on these lies. She's, she's in it too deep at this point, I think. And she's just gonna go full throttle into this fraud and lies. And then during this time, you know, boldly, Elizabeth Holmes speaks at another big conference in front of, again, a, a bunch of her critics. And she at this conference for the first time ever on stage, she lifts the curtain on her Edison machine and how it works. She shows pictures of all the internal parts and the, and the hardware. The only problem was at this conference, she was calling it a mini lab. She was no longer calling it by the Edison machine. And she was sort of treating it like it was a new invention. Or in my theory is that she was just trying to get away from the shit stain of the Edison machines that didn't work. So it's just the repurposed Edison machine, but now she's calling it the mini lab. And by 2017, Theranos had spent nearly all of the $900 million that the company had raised. 300 million of which went to lawsuits, legal fees, and to pay back Arizona customers who'd paid for tests there that they didn't get the accurate results and the tests were just bunk. And again, you know, around this time, high profile board members start to resign from the company. Kissinger leaves and, and a lot of the others leave the board as well. Basically, they're scattering like cockroaches. You know, th this company is no longer what it used to be. It's starting to be exposed or it has been exposed for what it really is, which is just bullshit. In 2016, Holmes ends up breaking up with Sonny and he gets fired from the company. I read other reports that said he quit. Either way, he was out of there like everybody else. And in 2018, that's when the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, charges Elizabeth and Sonny with a massive fraud to the tune of $700 million. They're basically claiming that 
Sonny and Elizabeth Holmes defrauded investors out of $700 million through false statements about the company's technology and its financials. And both Elizabeth and Sonny, they plead not guilty. And that same year, in 2018, when the charges were leveled against the two of them, Theranos does in fact get dissolved. The company is no longer. And before she goes on trial, Elizabeth, before Elizabeth goes on trial, there's a court document that shows that Elizabeth Holmes might be claiming uh, a mental disease in her upcoming trial and also that Sonny was abusive to her during their decade-long relationship. And of course, Sonny's camp strongly denies the abuse claims. In 2019, Elizabeth Holmes quietly marries a man by the name of Billy Evans. Now, Billy Evans apparently graduated from MIT and worked in tech for a time, and he comes from money as well. His grandparents were hoteliers. And in 2021, Holmes becomes pregnant, and this further delays her trial. And in August of 2021, Elizabeth Holmes actually does go on trial in San Jose, California. And four months after her trial starts, uh, in December of 2021, Elizabeth Holmes is found guilty on one count of conspiracy to defraud investors and three counts of wire fraud. Sonny Balwani is found guilty on 10 counts of federal wire fraud and two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And this ain't going to be good for either one of them. Elizabeth Holmes is sentenced to 11 and a half years. She ends up reporting to a Texas prison in mid-2023. She has a second child with her husband, Billy, sometime after being sentenced. And fun fact, Elizabeth Holmes reports to the same Texas prison where Real Housewives of Salt Lake City star Jen Shaw uh, is serving her time for her telemarketing scheme. So I don't know, are the two of them hanging out? Their personalities seem very different, although sometimes opposites attract. What I wouldn't give, like, I feel like I would give my left arm to be a fly on the wall for their interactions. I just have this like vision in my mind that the two of them get together and what would they say? They're probably both narcissists. I don't know. I don't have a psych degree, but they just do seem Jen Shaw for sure seems like she's probably a narcissist I don't know but like I don't know I just really would love to know what these two women might be saying to each other in prison that's actually a good question to ask all right you guys so if you're listening to this right now and go to Instagram when I put out the post for this yeah, serial streamers, you know, when I open up the chat in the comments, I want to know, what do you guys think that um, if Jen Shaw and Elizabeth Holmes are hanging out in prison, like what are they doing? Who's the alpha in the relationship? What do they talk about? What do they have in common? Like, just give me, give me your thoughts and theories on that. That'll be fun. But Elizabeth Holmes, although she was sentenced to 11 and a half years, she later gets her sentence reduced down to nine years, still a long time. Um, and her release date is currently set for December 29th of 2032. That's crazy. She deserves every second of that time, in my opinion. In December of 2022, Ramesh Sunny Balwani is sentenced to 13 years in prison, and he's currently serving his time at FCI Terminal Island Prison in San Pedro, California. So they both go down for this, as they should. There is so much evidence to show that they both were in cahoots on this big lie, this fraud. And you know, this all begs the question of whether... Elizabeth Holmes, at one point or another, or even still today, 
Did she actually believe in this technology? Did she actually believe she could and was doing good in the medical world and good for people as a whole? Did she believe in it? And then was there a point at which she was like, oh shit, I was a believer, but like I see all this evidence in front of me that these machines aren't working. All these people are telling me this technology can't work in this little machine. So I guess that's the question. Did she believe at one point and were her intentions good? And did she really think she could do some good? And then at some point she's like, yeah, no, this probably won't work. But then continued pushing forward because she was in too deep or she was greedy or whatever or do you think that she knew from the beginning that this is probably would not work but she really wanted to make a name for herself I don't know there are so many different ways you could see this but um I think it, my gut is telling me that she believed she could do something good and she those were her intentions in the beginning but I do firmly believe that she was smart enough to realize that all these people who were even smarter than her and had the expertise to say whether this would or would not work, when they're telling her explicitly this will not work and does not work, she continues to push on. And that is where I believe she went down a crooked road where she knew like she should have shut things down. But I think by that point, she was in too deep. She had all this these investors money. She had people relying on her. She had her name to protect her her ego, whatever it was. And I think that at some point she did know, but continued pushing on and was a real shithead for lack of a better term. What do you guys think? I cannot wait to hear what you guys think about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and Sonny Balwani and all the things. Maybe you can answer that question, provide your theories as to whether you think that, you know, Elizabeth Holmes was maybe started off good, but ended up bad or maybe was always bad. Uh, give me your thoughts. And of course, answer the question of what her and Jen Shaw are talking about right now in prison. <laughs> Because I just have this fantasy that they're hanging out. Wouldn't that be amazing? I, I don't know. All right, you guys. So make sure you're following me on Instagram at Jamie on air. That's J-A-M-I on air. That's how you join the Serial Streamers uh, True Crime TV Club. You just got to follow me on Instagram. Every couple of weeks, I will go and announce the club's watch assignment. I'll give you about a week or so, and we will all go and watch that docu-series or TV series. And then about a week after that, we will come back to Instagram. I'll put out a post saying, all right, you guys, I'm opening up the chat. Let's talk about it. And that's where our Serial Streamers Club meets virtually on Instagram. Every couple of weeks, we meet in the comments. I swear I'm going to get my shit together and do an IG live sooner rather than later so that we can actually really talk about these docu-series in real time. I promise I will do that. But for now, at least we can talk to each other in the comments. So make sure you're following me on Instagram at Jamie on Air so you don't miss out. Join the club. You don't want to have FOMO. I know you're already watching these docu-series like I am and so many other people are, right? And of course, don't forget to subscribe here on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, Stop what you're doing right now. Hit the subscribe button so that way you don't miss any new episodes. I post new videos every couple of weeks, every two weeks, uh, usually on a Friday, but sometimes, you know, Friday-ish. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss those. And if you're listening on a podcast right now, stop what you're doing. Hit the subscribe or follow button in whatever podcast app you're listening on. And again, that way you'll get a notification when I put out a new podcast episode. Because as I've said before, every couple of weeks, I drop a YouTube video about the docu-series. 
And at the same time, I drop a podcast episode about the docuseries on the Murderish podcast feed. So if you want, if you're watching on YouTube right now and you want to listen on, a, on the podcast, just search for Murderish in any podcast app, and then you will find the Serial Streamers episodes there. I hope that all makes sense. All right, you guys, I will see you very soon for another Serial Streamers docu-series breakdown. But in the meantime, I will see you sometime today. If you're listening right now, basically the day that I drop this episode on YouTube and the podcast, I will see you on Instagram and we will talk about this docu-series and you can let out anything that it is that you want to say about Miss Elizabeth Holmes and her tiny drop of blood. Tell me about her flyaways. Did they bother you when you're watching the docu-series? Because her flyaways really got me. Um, and her claiming that she'd been wearing uh, black turtlenecks since she was seven. I call bullshit. I think she was just copying Steve Jobs. All right, you guys, I'll see you soon. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.